This is the weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, your hosts, Drew Dawkin and Grant Collins, will have an in-depth conversation about what's happening in the markets. Right now, it is the morning of February 5th. It's Wednesday, so the market is still in full flux, but I'll kind of talk about what's happened so far and then a little bit about what, the, what this means for the last couple of days. Dow's up 280 points, roughly. It's kind of been fluctuating around 29,088. S&P is up 25 points, so 3323. Um, the VIX so far has been down about 3.36%, so it's kind of hovering around 15.51. We've seen NASDAQ trade pretty choppily so far, largely due to the fact that Tesla shares have plummeted. Um, It announced that it plans to delay the Model 3 deliveries in China due to the coronavirus. So that's kind of what we're seeing in terms of, you know, manufacturing and the the NASDAQ end. Um, Additionally, we've had three solid days of uh, stock markets, and that's kind of come on, you know, what happened on Friday, which was, you know, a, a large, large point drop, but we've certainly seemed to be rebounding. Um, one of the big picks that was interesting last week was, of course, Facebook on Thursday. That fell as much as 8% um, after it reported the fourth quarter earnings on Wednesday, uh, largely due to the fact that it, 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 it reported a rise of 51% in the expenses. Grant, let's talk about Facebook and you know what's going on there. Huge drop in Facebook. As you said, 51% rise in expenses. The expenses were largely related to the company's privacy and security improvements, which are going to be vastly important as we're seeing them continue to be investigated uh, abroad as well as the United States. We saw them them close lower on Thursday after their fourth quarter earnings. Uh, but if we look at Instagram, which is a subsidiary of Facebook, we saw that they had $20 billion in ad revenue, which is really significant compared to YouTube, which had $15.2 billion in revenue. And I think this is why we see Facebook continuing to, to fight against the antitrust investigation. But I think Facebook is, is really in a tough position here because I think their expenses are going to continue to increase due to the the continued privacy and security improvements. And then their ad revenue may also be impacted by by regulations that, that are coming this year. Yeah, I mean, and these privacy improvements, you know, that, that have been a result of these regulatory headwinds, you know, may, may have effects on, you know, Apple's iPhones and Google as well, Android software. And, um, all tech. All tech, right. And, and I mean, and some of the losses we've seen, it's definitely coincided with the drop of the company's operating margins, which in 2018 were at 45%. And then at the end of 2019, we saw operating margins of 34% for Facebook. Right. 51% increase in, in expenses. I mean, that just really hurts the bottom line overall. Yeah. I mean, Zuckerberg's, I mean, he's kind of become something of a media sensation, but it will be interesting to see, you know, how he plays. One, how they're going to, you know, kind of how long these expenses, these jumping expenses are going to last regarding the privacy. And also, um, on a side note, what he's going to do about political ads, because there's also been some kind of just social, like more or less CSR um, response to this as well, I think. Well, not banning political ads that, that are untruthful is is 
we've seen a lot of other tech companies combat that with Twitter. Uh, so we'll, we'll see that. I mean, as long as he doesn't have to testify in front of Congress again, because I don't think I've ever seen someone so scared to get in front of people before. So uh, we'll we'll see what happens to Zuckerberg. I mean, there's <laughs> a lot of people have made fun of the way he drinks, you know, bottled water, but it's almost like, oh, what do I do with my hands? You know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no shortage of entertainment there. But I, so, you know, what we saw on Friday was definitely – still prolonged issue with coronavirus. Um, right now we're seeing companies warn of the economic crisis due to coronavirus um, definitely affecting China. Uh, so shares of and prices, uh, share prices in mainland China fell 10% since January 20th. Uh, we saw analysts change their um, revisions. They thought, you know, year over year to the end of the quarter, growth would be 6%. They've since revised that to look around 4% growth, which would be the lowest uh, number since 1992, um, really when China started kind of reporting the world, yeah. right? So, so yeah, I mean, it's definitely, definitely could be a huge impediment to China, and we'll see if it has further ramifications to things like the trade deal. It's interesting how fast these these revisions have changed just from this what i will call we called it yesterday or uh, last week on our podcast the a black swan event because we saw a lot of businesses and projections were upbeat after we saw china and america finally reach their their trade deal that was really having an impact on both the chinese and the american economies and then right when that goes in the the coronavirus is now apparent i think the big one is is gdp slowing since 1992 that's that's really big we saw the chinese government is stepping up to support social uh, stability but not really to boost growth so we'll see how the how the chinese government continues to react I saw that the the Chinese were able to build a hospital in 10 or 12 days last week for for the coronavirus, and I couldn't imagine how long that would take in the United States. Oh, God. (laughs) Environmental permits withstanding. (laughs) But I think that we're we're seeing how the Chinese government can can really – combat this this coronavirus and its outbreak. And I think investors outside of China are looking to see how domestic companies react and, and are following suit. There's really three unknowns, really. I mean, how long is it going to take to to get the virus under control? How long will it take to the government to, to relax? And then how long will it take until people resume regular spending activity? So there's still three huge unknowns as we think about the coronavirus. In the near term, we should look at Chinese response as solely focused on containing the virus. So growth and everything else comes second. What the Chinese did was they had central banks inject $172 billion into the financial system. Um, so banks have some liquidity right now to deal with this. But there's talks about an infrastructure spending bill, as you know, Chinese are renowned to do, right, whether you're talking about the, the Belt and Road Initiative or, or the Silk Road or any other large-scale projects to kind of goose up demand. But right now, they're really going to have to cut back on that because they don't want guys, you know, putting up factories and putting up, you know, large-scale construction projects. They want people, especially in, you know, around uh, Wuhan to, to stay inside. So. To stay at home, yeah. And, and that's a really good point about giving banks liquidity because if we think about companies not being able to to have consumer spending or 
really drive any economic activity. We may see uh, rising in loan defaults in the coming weeks because of that slow economic activity. Uh, I, I saw a report the other day in the New York Times that they also have barred clients from short selling on the exchanges. Uh, so people not wanting to, to profit off of this slowdown in economic activity. Roadblocks have certainly hurt agriculture. Uh, poultry farmers are having a tough time to get the chicken to market uh, with roadblocks and and that goes across a lot of sectors uh, outside agriculture as well. Now, of course, it's, you know, it's, this is a tragic event and, you know, we got to contain it, uh, make sure it doesn't become the next SARS or, or a larger scale global pandemic. But uh, it was interesting. There is some kind of, you know, talk and analysis. Uh, this came from Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross last Thursday that uh, the coronavirus might be seen as a manufacturing bump due to, you know, changing supply lines. If stuff can't be made in China, then, you know, the U.S. can pick up some of this, some of this need. Well, it's all about diversification. I think the global, if you're just getting all of your, all of your goods from China, if, if there is a bump, that's really going to hurt the, the supply chain. But I think that a slowdown in, in China, since we've talked about it, it is the second largest economy and people do look for it for, for goods. It will be affecting the global supply supply chain, especially because the global economy is highly interconnected. We saw Hyundai, they stopped uh, stopped production in their South Korea plants. I think other other places are going to follow suit, at least for the slowdown. We saw that Disney closed down their, their Shanghai and Hong Kong parks for, for the moment, so that will affect their their earnings in this quarter. So I think overall we'll, we'll see that there there is a slowdown, not just on manufacturing, but but across a lot of the global sector. Right. And a lot of people have kind of looked at Peter Navarro. Um, I don't know if this was kind of chatter, what, what the foundational truth is, but that we won't really cut as many of the tariffs off until this is contained to phase two. Uh, Peter Navarro, from what I saw, seemed to kind of say this is, you know, these are unfortunate rumors or it's an unfortunate take, I should say. But uh, I don't think rumors really cuts it. Right. <laughs> But it would be interesting to see if, you know, if we do indeed leverage instability to kind of further our hand in in what we want with some of these trade agreements. Um, So, I mean, right into that point, manufacturing is rebounded in January. We've talked about, you know, contractions, uh, but the ISM has been below 50, which is, you know, sign of contraction for five straight months. But... um, you know, right now it's it's above 50. Uh, last month it was at 50.9, uh, um, which is the highest level since July. And it, um, you know, quite a bit up from, from December, which the final revised numbers of December were 47.8. Uh, we've talked about how this has really been a story of two economies, the service economy and the manufacturing economy. But manufacturing is 11% of our, of our, of our economy. And, and now we're seeing, um, seeing this correct a little bit. Factory activity rebounded after, as you said, five contracting months straight. Uh, U.S. was still going to continue to have, as you just mentioned, $360 billion worth of tariffs on on Chinese imports. Uh, But one thing to note is that manufacturers are reported paying more for raw materials and other inputs. And I think with this supply chain slowdown from China, that that may actually continue to increase cost, which may also have a have a drag on the manufacturing moving forward into the first quarter. It still seems to be somewhat regional. Uh, We're still seeing contractions in the Chicago area. 
Um, Philly seems to have significantly rebounded. Um, from what I saw, the Richmond data was kind of mixed, you know, with the diff- different banks giving out the numbers. But, uh, but yeah, it seems, you know, by and large, a lot of lot of lot of our zones are kind of coming out of a manufacturing slump and and seem to be progressing. Let's segue into, we're also seeing the biggest decline of imports since 2009. So, uh, you know, that can be seen as, you know, we're fixing our trade balance, but then, you know, it also appears that it could be something to do with weakening U.S. demand, right, and business investment um, as much as anything else. That may be the biggest. I think any contraction in a trade deficit is has more to do with slowing U.S. demand than a surge in exports. Uh, the biggest contributor to the pace of growth for fourth quarter last year was uh, 1.5 percentage points from net exports, uh, which really came from the biggest slump in imports we've seen since the Great Recession of, of 2009. Yeah, we saw the value of U.S. goods entering ports uh, and border crossings in the fourth quarter was at an annualized of uh, $2.86 trillion, um, and that's the smallest since the third quarter of 2007. So. You know, we you have an economist in Oxford, Economist Greg Daco says, you know, we have what is an optical illusion of the economy chugging along um, when we're talking about GDP, but we should really be looking at this 8.7% drop of of imports and 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 thankfully maybe it means that net trades, um, you know, is one of the big parts of our GDP optical illusion. Yeah, if consumption's weakening, then you're going to have weaker imports. It's just it's that simple. And so, if we think about it that way, it it makes sense why we would have that trade deficit contraction. On an international front, we've seen, especially in regards to Europe, uh, between you know Brexit being at least a done thing, and um, we've seen some kind of significant changes. Also, when we look at some of the countries that you know labeled, you know, Portugal, Italy, you know, Greece and Spain. Um, we've seen uh, France and Italy contract and Spain's essentially gaining momentum. Uh, both French and Italian economies unexpectedly shrank at the end of 2019, um, which, you know, was, comes at the time when a lot of people thought the Eurozone was at significantly stronger footing. Um, so France has been, you know, a lot of that's done to the strikes. Uh, Italy's GDP fell 0.3%, which is almost the most in in seven years. So you're still seeing some significant issues when it comes to comes to two of the larger economies in, in the you know in the eurozone. France continues to have a problem, as you said, with which is a good great point. Something to look at is the mass protests and strikes around pension reforms, and that has had a drastic impact on household spending. Uh, I think also we saw that. And, and consumer spending did contract in December by 0.3 percent, which is which is something to note, especially during a, the holiday season. You would expect consumer spending to to at least be flat or or up. Uh, overall, I, it's funny that we have the French ministers blaming disruptions in ports and rail network and, and fuel deposits, but said that it's still a resilient economy. But it, it all signs are, are pointing the opposite way. Right, especially since when we look at Emmanuel Macron, he was really the reformer candidate. You know, he's more of the, you know, banker's banker, so to speak. Um, so you know, we thought we'd see, and we have seen structural reforms when it comes to taxes and labor laws. But then you've also seen, of course, 
a, a backlash, right? Because, you know, once you have, you know, you start to lose pensions and, you know, you've got to work longer hours and this, that, and the other thing, it's, it's a tough pill to swallow. So even if you're trying to steady the ship, there's going to be, you know, a lot of angry people out there. Definitely. I mean, I wouldn't want my 12 weeks of vacation and 30 hour work weeks and a large pension to go away either. No wonder the economy's contracting. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I guess on a positive note, you know, Spain has grown. Um, you know, when we've talked about if you've if you've followed Spain over the years, I mean, you, you know, you saw unemployment, which used to be at you know Great Depression levels, our, our Great Depression, almost like twenty plus percent, and youth unemployment was was at you know forty percent at one time. But they've really been chugging along um, relative to where they were and how deep the crisis used to be. Uh, growth picked up, you know, 05 percent in the fourth quarter. Uh, which is a little slight pickup from, you know, the last few months. Uh, and it was above what economists thought, which was, you know, 0.4%. So, um, you know, that's that's in sharp contrast to, you know, places like France, which we just mentioned. And um, and it's it's actually quite a bit better than the rest of the euro area in, in a lot of ways. And that's interesting because Spain economy expanded by 2% in 2019. But again, that was the slowest pace since 2014. So even though there there is that economic growth, and it is one of the outliers in Europe, it's still economic pace is, is still slowing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we also it's, I mean, Spain, Spain's really been a catalyst um, in, in Greece when we're talking about how the area looks overall. And, you know, and we, we should mention it, this year is going to be very interesting with Brexit because you're going to have functionally 11 months for them to come up with a, an agreement when it regards to, you know, fishing and the borders and, and immigration and all the rest of it. Uh, so, I mean, I saw Nigel Farage and, you know, what used to be the UKIP walked out last day of the European Parliament, you know, waving flags. So that'll be an interesting thing to to watch when it comes to the growth of the EU. Um this coming year. Definitely. And, and one other thing to add there on, on Spain is we did see that they raised the national minimum wage by 6%. Uh, and so the government officials say they want to continue to increase minimum wage each year. And so if they haven't seen a, a drag on the economy so far, but if they if they continue to increase wages that, that outpace growth and productivity, that can drag on, on the Spanish economy as well. So that may be something to watch out for as we get into later 2020. Yeah, you've seen a coalition government form too, which has kind of helped out with some of the political instability. Um, there's going to be peripheral issues that arise, whether it's we're talking about you know Catalonian independence and some of the other things. But but yeah, right now right now things look better. Um, and in terms of the you know the European Central Bank, I, I should note that um, they might be kind of looking at how they define inflation. Uh, right now they capture, you know, rents paid by tenants, but they're not in the cost of buying and owning property. Uh, and, and you should, and we should note that two thirds of people in the Eurozone own home, own their own homes. So, uh, I mean, right now, those numbers could have been either, you know, inflated or deflated, depending on, you know, what home ownership looks like, and, you know, what the cost of buying a home looks like. But it's, it's an important thing that I think they're adding that into their metrics of when you're looking at overall EU inflation. If two-thirds of people are owning homes, I, I think you have to include it. It, it shouldn't just be rental costs because that would be a bad a bad uh, thing to add for the inflation numbers. It doesn't seem like they're the right metric to add. Right. I, I mean, now you have, you know, Christine Lagarde's taken over and, you know, she's coming off, you know, long-term in the IMF and, um, and this is one of the reforms she 
she talked about addressing. So be interesting to see how that plays out when we're looking at, you know, global metrics and data. So one of the things we talked about last week was how Iowa was going to affect the markets. And what we've seen is absolute chaos in Iowa, but a <laughs> muted response in the markets because there hasn't been, you know, much of a decision. Um, I mean, Iowa, in terms of overall, you know, the electoral, the, the votes that come out of it's pretty low. Um, you know, you get something like 41 delegates, but in terms of PR and momentum going into New Hampshire and then Nevada and then Super Tuesday, Iowa's always been a major catalyst. And in terms of, you know, who wins it, it's very important for framing the narrative and seeing how the things play out. But you had issues with apps. Uh, Demo- the Iowa Democrats couldn't report the results the first day. Then they dumped 62% the next day. And we've kind of still seen it trickling in, right, with Bernie and, and Pete fairly close, but with uh, Pete Buttigieg um, kind of seems to be in the lead. So what's our take on on Iowa? It's an absolute nightmare for Democrats. I mean, they just can't get it right. I Trying to use an app created by a company called Shadow, first of all, great name for the Democrats, uh, and that the founders were from Hillary's presidential campaign. And one of the biggest things is there was a lot of concerns about security. And if we think about Hillary Clinton's campaign, that was a, a big miss there. Uh, the company almost went bankrupt. They didn't train or really vet the app. So, it, I mean, it's no wonder the app didn't work or, or people were not able to download it or report their results right. Uh, I think it plays right into the Republicans' hand. Uh, but Iowa as a whole, I think you're absolutely right. It definitely is uh, more symbolic uh, especially as, as you gain momentum. And uh, it's interesting to see Buttigieg just, just outpacing uh, Bernie for the moment right now. And as you alluded to, it's really important for Buttigieg to, to win Iowa to, to stay in the race. But overall, I think the, the Iowa caucus was a, was a swing and a miss for the Democrats who really just can't get out of their own way right now. I mean, there's so many things that people have issues with Iowa being first and caucuses in general. We've seen the number of caucus states decrease um, coming into this election. But to start off with a caucus, I mean, it's a very weird thing, right? It takes hours. You have different, you know, meetings all across the state. And, you know, you can't really, if a candidate doesn't meet, I think it's, you know, what? a 15% barrier. Yeah, right. You have to kind of go with another candidate and so i mean with all the craziness that 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 leaves about 15 percent of the people who are eligible to you know be in the primaries actually show out and do it so it's not democratic despite i mean talking for five hours doesn't mean something's democratic i mean (laughs) i I think that's one of the big and not like there's there's just so many things that are absolutely crazy about the way we do you know our political systems and this is definitely one of them so I guess the only hope coming out of it would be they change the location or they change the status of Iowa as a caucus and just make it, you know, the decisive, you know, elective, elective state. But well, a big one is, is if if we think about Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, if 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 both Elizabeth and Bernie reach that 15 percent. Uh, 15% barrier, then their their voters are going to stay still. Whereas if 
if Biden didn't make the 15% barrier, then they could go to Pete Buttigieg, and, and that impacts the final results. So this is the first time, uh, maybe 2016 was the first time that we're reporting both the first and final votes. And so Bernie Sanders will, will have maybe the most first, but then afterwards Buttigieg will, will have the final. And so it's it's interesting to see how people get that second vote, and that really is a, a big factor on who is the winner in the Iowa caucus. There's certainly something to be said that people who didn't perform that well can take this as a mulligan, um, whether that be maybe Klobuchar. I don't think that's the case for Joe Biden. Uh, Coming in at fourth place when he's a former vice president is an abysmal showing. Um, You know, when we talk about how this affects the markets, you know, I've seen contrarian arguments, whereas Bernie might be the less electable candidate, you know, Per se, so if Bernie, you know, goes against Trump, it might be more muted than Biden because then they think there might be more of a contender. But I think that's all just—it's really anecdotal at this point. Definitely. I mean, I've seen a lot of analysis that you know, Bernie, especially in a lot of the uh, Rust Belt states, is probably better positioned than Biden. You know, I think people are angry and they want an angry candidate, so they got an angry candidate. And now they might want another angry candidate and. You know, whether you stand on these policy issues, I I think that matters a lot less than we think it does. I don't think people have this really roped in value system. And I do think they vote for, you know, the person and really just kind of vote on their general mood. That's one thing to note. I think also we we should note that the State of the Union was last night as well. Uh, It we did see President Trump talk about the the strong economy and where it is. And I think going into his campaign, he's going to highlight that. It, we constantly hear him talk about how people's 401ks are doing and, and how how the stock market's doing. And, and I think he's going to continue to do that in his 2020 campaign because in, in a robust economy where we are today, uh, he, he, presidents usually like to highlight that. Yeah. I mean, and then... Um you know, the Governor Gretchen, you know, was speaking last night in terms of, you know, a lot of Americans aren't feeling the effects. And you watch a few cycles of these, and then it kind of seems redundant. But, you know, depending on what president's in power, the average American's not feeling the effects, right? And that's every cycle you hear that. But there's something to be said about it, because, you know, I mean, when you look at wages relative to the 70s to where they are, that's certainly down. Social mobility is certainly down. Um, so huge huge institutional problems exist despite the economy. And this isn't a Trump thing. This isn't even a Barack Obama thing. This isn't even a George Bush thing. This isn't a Bill Clinton thing. This has been 30 years of really an institutional failure in wages keeping up and social mobility keeping up. And, you know, you have an increase of suicides every year. Um, You have an increase of opioid dependency every year. So there is this darkness that it's, it's tough to really, you know, wrap your finger around when we are talking about, you know, 3.5% unemployment and, and strong manufacturing now. And I mean, slower growth, but you know, relative to what it could be is just chuckling along just fine, but all in due time. Yeah. All right. And with that, I think we'll, you know, if you have anything grant that you'll be looking at next week. Uh, to see how Iowa finishes out, uh, we have the impeachment vote today, which I think uh, will not 
will Trump will have uh, have the votes to stay in office. I think we'll we'll be looking at at New Hampshire and getting ready for for Super Tuesday. We are continuing to see fourth quarter in 2019 results for for earnings. Uh, so continue to look at that to see if if they beat expectations. One stock that I that I think a lot of people are looking at that we should talk about is is Tesla. Uh, we were continuing to see them report profits and that it is the currently the most shorted stock on Wall Street. And so we're, we're seeing that the rise is really starting to, to squeeze those short sellers. So be interesting to see if, if there's movement on those. Uh, we, we did see some people come out, Ron Barron, say that he thinks that Tesla in the next decade will, will go to one trillion dollars. I don't know necessarily know if I agree with that, uh, but it's, it, it is something that that I'll be looking at because it is kind of fun to see all the position on the on the short end and and see how Elon Musk reacts to that. I mean, Tesla's a banger, right? I mean, Ford and GM have had like you know price per earnings multiples at like high, like eleven, twelve, roughly, and then Tesla's many, many, many times more. And then combined valuations, Tesla's just this gigantic 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 valuation um what's currently this the second most valuable car manufacturer in in the world and that's really interesting because if you think about comparing it to ford ford produced two million cars last year whereas tesla produced three hundred and sixty thousand, missing their 500,000 target. So, I mean, that's pretty big right there. And also, if we think about them being the electronic car manufacturer, you best believe that Volkswagen, Ford, and a lot of the other uh, big car companies are right behind them with with, uh, electric car batteries. And and so I think that that may actually impact their, their market cap. I mean, this is when you get into, like, animal spirits, right? I mean, do you, like, in sentiment, like, you know, are, are Ford and GM sexy, or do you like this Canadian, South African, American guy who, you know, smokes reefer with Joe Rogan and is <laughs> building holes in Los Angeles? And so, I mean, the, the you know, the, the PR is, you know, absolutely stunning. And, um, you know, you can see people's fascination with Tesla across the board. What are you looking for, Drew? Oh, no, I'll be, uh, yeah, I'll definitely be looking at Tesla for sure. Um, I'll be curious to see, of course, we'll be talking about the coronavirus, but um, the USCMA has kind of been kind of underway. So we'll see how that affects supply chains between us and, and Mexico and Canada. Um, and, you know, we'll see what, what, what happens more in our hemisphere on a trading front would be interesting to see how that plays out. All right, everybody, it's been 30 minutes. Have a great rest of your week, and we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked in any of the content. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.